Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have been, and you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? And that is the million dollar question. Hey, do you know what you want and do you know how to get it? This is Carol the Coach. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and this is the only show about sexual addiction. And I feel so honored to be able to be here with you disseminating information that will help you to get healthy and work on those relationships and really take your life to the next level. You know, I'm a psychotherapist and a life coach, so the psychotherapist part of me wants to heal the wounds. The coaching part of me wants to take you to the next level. But you can't go to the next level until you do heal the wounds. And so that requires a lot of individual help. And I can't emphasize enough that most people do not know how to get that help. I mean, they go to therapists that they hear are good. And more often than not, those therapists are. They're very good. At the same time, they're not skilled in sexual addiction. So what may take you in a year, a year and a half, in normal therapy would only take you six months with a certified sexual addictions therapist. I believe that. I wouldn't I wouldn't steer you wrong. I really believe that and that's why I got the training. I am looking at so many different ways that I can get additional training to to help with my couples. You know, I work with individuals and if you're single and don't have a partner, it's, there's oftentimes many, many, many things that we can do to assist you in getting healthy. But I have to admit that when you do have a partner, that partner is oftentimes a catalyst for getting you the help you need and a deterrent. You heard me. For all the partners listening right now, you can be a deterrent to a client getting the help they need. Why, you may ask? Well, i got to tell you, oftentimes a partner is so traumatized that the addict spends all of his or her time figuring out what they can do to make it better. And although that is a great, great, great thing to do, it oftentimes will distract the addict from doing the things that they need to do. So, if you are a partner listening to this show, the number one thing you can do is focus on yourself. And if you are an addict listening to this show, the number one thing you can do is focus on yourself. 
Now, saying that, I also believe that addicts so oftentimes need to develop empathy. They need to know how they've hurt their partner. And so not only is it imperative that a sexual addictions therapist knows what to do to create a recovery plan that will actually help the addict feel more secure and more um, regimented in terms of what they need to do. But I have to admit that oftentimes it's that juggling act between telling an addict, okay, I want you to look at this for your recovery program. You know, you need to, A, uh, get into 12-step meetings and go to as many 12-step meetings a week as you can. B, get a sponsor. C, um, learn how to pray. D, meditate. E, call other people in the program. F, Exercise. G, make sure that you spend time with the significant others in your life working on developing healthy relationships, relationships where you're working on communication and all sorts of things like that. Now, if you think about your life, do you do those things? That oftentimes can be some of the toughest, and I do mean toughest, things that somebody can do. Why? Because we are all human and we want to get the results we need without doing the work. But when you have a sexual addiction, you've got to do the work. I think I may have talked to you last week about the fact that I'm a person that believes you have to face your fears head on. And what does that mean? Okay, well, facing your fears head on means that you have to look at what scares you the most in your life. Is it feeling that sense of deprivation because you can't have what you want when you want it? Is it saying goodbye to a porn addiction because that porn addiction has been your best friend? Is it Figuring out how you can find healthy ways of stimulating you because let's face it, oftentimes men or women go from person to person to person to person to stimulate themselves. And when you don't work on finding healthy ways of stimulation, then you're lost. You know, there's just no way that you can accomplish what you need to because you're not heading in the right direction. You know, I had a man today, and bless his heart, he wants recovery, but he doesn't want to work on it. He doesn't want to have to do the hard work that makes that possible. So what happened? Well, he and his wife, thought they were just going along, you know, splendidly. And then his wife found out that he was talking to another woman, a co-worker. And she got so upset because it's more of the same, and she wants to divorce the guy. They came in to see me because, you know what, she really doesn't want to divorce the guy. She wants him to get better. But what I know to be true is that this man isn't ready to do the hard work yet. So prognosis is very, very poor. You know, are you out there and are you thinking, yeah, I get that. I don't want to do the hard work either. I don't want to do what it takes to let go of my addiction and no longer have it in my life. Now, here's what I want to, I want you to know. I understand that. And if you're in that stage, you're still in the contemplative stage. You're not ready to make the decision. Maybe the crisis hasn't been enough. Maybe you haven't hurt enough. 
But it's not going to get better until you make that decision and do what works. And the formula is simple, but it's hard. You have to change your lifestyle. Now, oftentimes I have clients that say, why? Why am I like this? So tonight I'm going to be talking with Timothy D. Stein. He's a marriage and family therapist, and he is the co-founder of Willow Tree Counseling in Santa Rosa, California. And he really believes that oftentimes trauma is at the root of sexual addiction. So we're going to be talking to him about trauma and what is the best way to treat trauma. He happens to believe that it's trauma workshops. And I have to admit, when you get a concentrated amount of time to work on your issues, you know, when you get to spend three days, five days, two weeks, a month, or longer on yourself, you are definitely going to be doing the hard work to make your life happen. If you are having difficulty in your life, feel free to give us a call at 646-595-3284, and we will be more than happy to answer your calls. However, you know, one of the things that I know about this is that whenever you talk about sex, you have pranksters. You have people that take this very lightly. You have people that are looking for an opportunity to pull one over on you. So I am asking you to only call if you have a real and legitimate question that you need to get answered. And again, that number is 646-595-3284. Now, you know, I work with some of the finest in the world. They're all certified sexual addiction counselors, and they all have their own individual expertise. And Deb Kaplan, who's a psychotherapist, specializes in trauma, sex addiction, finance, and relationships. And I've had her on the show. She is really at the forefront of some very, um, very instrumental work with EMDR and sex addiction. Now, EMDR, as you may know, is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's something that I personally do. And I really believe that it helps with trauma. And I'm sure when we check in, um, when we check in with Tim, he will say the same thing. Now, she says it may not be easy to quiet the sirens of one's healthy sexual desires and even more difficult when those desires have become addictive. When she works with sexual addiction, she engages in a number of modalities or techniques to help her clients make their way out of the the maze of compulsions. And... You know, for anybody who's worked in the 12-step program, they know that there are bottom-line behaviors, and these behaviors are the behaviors that absolutely are unacceptable. Bottom-line behaviors are behaviors representing one's addiction. And she really employs a variety of techniques, including EMDR, And one of the reasons that she does that is because it absolutely changes the feeling state theory within a person. She maintains that when the feeling state is triggered, the entire psychophysiological pattern is activated. So she wants addicts to understand their feeling state. And there's this thing called feeling state theory. And that refers to the entire psychophysiological arousal of the body and its connection with a specific behavior. And that may have occurred very young in life. I mean, today I was talking with somebody who said, when I was sodomized as a child, it hurt and it felt good. And that significant experience that occurred over and over and over resulted in 
his need to engage in sodomizing behaviors with other people. It was consensual, but it still mirrored and modeled what he had experienced as a kid. So in other words, just imagine that something very traumatic as a kid also felt good. And so you fuse those two together, and what ends up happening is it it creates an arousal template that then sets you up for sexual addiction. And that's why sexual addiction can occur. It can have, have to do with the trauma of something negative that occurred in your life that may or may not have felt pleasurable. And so tonight, I'm going to be talking with Tim Stein, and he is a master at understanding how that system works, and more importantly, how trauma transfers into sexual addiction, and what do you do to reprocess that so that you can actually live a healthy life. So, Tim, Welcome to the Sex Help with Carol the Coach Show. Oh, hi, Carol. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well, and I I just was talking about trauma and um, attachment and compulsion, and certainly these are all words that you are so familiar with. I mean, you have been treating people for a number of years as to how they can work through these issues, so I'm very excited to be having you on the show. Thank you oh, well, so thank much you so for being much a part for, of this. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about what you consider to be your definition of trauma. My definition of trauma, I, I look at trauma from a number of different lenses. Um, there's some of the what we call big T trauma. Uh, that would be things like uh, being molested as a child, um, significant physical abuse, um, going through something that you know any anybody standing outside would look at it and say, "Wow, that was tough to get through. Um, that was um, over the top, and it's definitely going to have an impact on that person." And then there are events that are yes. Are so lo- you're saying big T, T traumas are the huge traumas, death yes. and and um, abuse. But what are the little T traumas? The little T traumas would be things that are are more subtle that uh, you don't always see. And somebody looking at it might might not even think that it's traumatic. And what I find is with my clients um, that oftentimes they themselves don't even identify it as being traumatic. Those would be things like um, having a parent that is uh, sort of self-absorbed in their own experience um, and really isn't emotionally available to the child. Uh, They would be things like um, some ongoing emotional abuse, which most people don't identify. And I have many people that I have worked with that um, don't recognize it because they will say things to themselves like, well, I got through it. It wasn't too bad. Other people had things worse than I did. Uh, Little t trauma can be uh, having a parent or caregiver who is, uh, emotionally, uh, un- emotionally enmeshed with you, um, where um, where you being successful uh, as their child is extremely important to them, and that's actually how they get their sense of self worth. Um, sometimes this kind of trauma actually feels good to us when we're growing up. Uh, it feels like we're the golden child. It feels like. Um, you know, we are the, the hero of the family. Um, but in that type of uh, experience, what actually has happened is that we have been given responsibility as a child for the parent's emotional needs. And so little t trauma will be these very subtle, small things that, uh, that, that when people are talking to me about their childhood, they don't even identify it as, as being anything that is impacting them in any way whatsoever. Um, I've been doing this work for, for a while, so I'm a little bit jaded these days. But, you know, people will walk into my office, and at some point the question comes up of, well, what was it like growing up in your family? And, you know, they're coming to see me typically because of sex addiction, uh, mm-hmm. it, whether they're the partner or whether they're the addict. And they'll tell me, oh, my family was wonderful. And 
I find myself thinking, okay, down the road I've got another fantasy to shatter. Not because I don't think their parents loved them, and not because I don't think that their family gave them the best that their family could give them. But if they are struggling with this kind of compulsive behavior, you know, nine times out of ten, there's a family system that didn't give them what they needed that may not have been overtly big T traumatizing, but almost always there are those little traumas that are flying under the radar that are having a huge impact on on, on the person. Um, one particular client that comes to mind, and he is a, a guy who, growing up in his family, he felt very emotionally disconnected uh, from his family and, and sort of experienced it almost as an abandonment, even though on the surface his family looked great. You know, they were involved in activities. They were taking him to sporting events. They were doing all the stuff on the outside. But on the inside, it felt very emotionally empty. And this particular client's wife was heading off with some friends for a, a, a fun weekend. And at this point in the recovery, the relationship was solid. They were in a very good space. He knew that there was nothing nothing going on. There was, wasn't a chance his wife was, was leaving him or abandoning him. But as she left, he came into my office the next week and he said, I had this pit in the gut of my stomach and it felt like I was being left all over again. And he relapsed over the weekend. And it had nothing to do with any overt trauma. It had everything to do with re-experiencing in, in a different way the emotional emptiness that he grew up with in his family. And it drove him back into his addiction. And I see that pattern again and again and again. So long answer to what is trauma, what's not trauma. But th that's kind of what I, I see it looking like and one of the ways that I see it impacting the, the people that we're, we're trying to help. Well, and, and, you know, as you speak about that, that seems much more insidious. That seems like something that the normal person may not even recognize it's subconscious or unconscious and so as a therapist you may have some convincing to do that hey that was unhealthy for you uh, i have a lot of convincing to do and partly because i have a lot of convincing to do we, we don't do this work early in in recovery partly because you know with addiction, any addiction, but sex addiction definitely included, addictions are, are not, like sex addiction is not about sex. Sex addiction is about not feeling those deeper wounds and those deeper pains that are overwhelming to us. And sex is simply the behavior that we use to not feel it. And so when someone is first coming into my office and we are initially working together, they are still using their addiction to not feel and to not dig into what those deeper wounds are. So even if I wanted to start talking to them about their trauma, even if I wanted to start digging in and doing some of that trauma work, they, they don't have access to it yet. And well, so it's interesting we, that you said that because clearly in some ways they're doing what we call trauma reenactment because they learn oh, how not to feel when they go through this, the exploitation, the, the little traumas, the big traumas, and then they don't feel again as adults so that they don't have to really deal with their feelings about the neglect. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes the way that they will reenact the trauma, sometimes it is a direct reenactment. For example, um, consider the man who is acting out sexually with other men but identifies himself as completely heterosexual. Usually when we dig into the trauma, what we find is that that man was molested by another man when he was a child. Sometimes that trauma reenactment is more metaphorical. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a, of a client who the one place he felt emotionally connected to his mother was when she was in the bathtub, and he would sit in the bathroom and talk to her. When he would get anxious and he would go act out his addiction, one of the places he went to was strip clubs and peep shows, which was voyeuring uh, a woman who's naked, which was a metaphorical reenactment in many ways of, of sitting in the bathroom with his mom. 
or if they um, if a client was traumatized because their, their their family was very rejecting or the relationships in the family weren't safe, their acting out is probably going to be much more isolated. They're probably going to be more likely to be uh, sitting at home looking at porn by themselves than they are to go out and act out physically physically and sexually with someone else because they don't want to experience the rejection again. And so they isolate and they act out in a way where they're not going to, to have that trauma wound get recreated. So absolutely, they reenact that trauma in many, many different ways. Well, and, you know, I know that you and I both believe that this, these kind of traumas um, can be recorded in the nervous system, that on a cellular level, the body takes in the trauma and processes it and stores it. So can you talk a little bit about how is trauma recorded in the nervous system and how does this impact the later experience of trauma reactions for sex addicts? Trauma gets recorded in the brain, like all memories get recorded in the brain, by two different parts of our brain, the hippocampus and the amygdala. And, you know, I, I had somebody explain it this way one time. It just fit for me. If you think about the hippocampus like a big old lumbering hippo, mm-hmm. it's a big animal. It's not scared of a whole lot of stuff. It's just kind of wandering around out there and checking out what's going on. And so the hippocampus is wandering around, checking out what's going on, and it's recording the who, what, where, when information. Now, the emotional information and the safety information is recorded by the amygdala. And if you think, I always think about the amygdala kind of like a, like a lizard, you know, kind of like a gecko, an iguana, the amygdala. And if you think about a lizard up on a rock, and they, it, it's got that constant scanning, looking around to see if, if, if the environment is safe. And the amygdala is not recording who, what, where, when. It's recording the safety of the, infer- of the current situation and do I need to protect myself or, or do I need to run and hide or is everything okay? When we go through a traumatic event, the hippocampus actually gets overwhelmed. And so the hippocampus is sort of out there recording the who, what, where, when, but when the, when the traumatic event is too much, the hippocampus shuts down. It kind of closes its eyes because it, it doesn't want to see everything that's going on. And so we often, when we're going through traumatic events, don't have that contextual information recorded. We don't know who it was. We don't know when it was. We don't know what was going on. But the amygdala is recording all of that information. And that all gets stored in our nervous system, in the brain stem and actually in the, in the core nervous system itself. So later on, if you go walk into a situation that is similar to or, or, or pushes a trigger that is similar to a past trauma, we may have no cognitive memory of what trauma is being recorded, but we will have this physiological reaction to it. We'll feel it in the pit of our stomach. We'll you know, get, go into cold sweats. Our heart will be rocking. And I find that one way, one way to tell if you're in a trauma reaction is, and I typically feel a lot younger. And what's going on is, is that our, our nervous system is remembering the trauma, even though I may not cognitively know what's going on. And that, that trauma reaction comes up years and years and years later. And some people are aware they're going to trauma reactions, but my experience is most of the time people aren't. It's not something that we have been trained or that we've been very good at educating people about unless they come in and they're, they're doing therapy with someone who really knows, knows trauma. Okay, so one more time, as you explain that, for our listening audience, what you're saying is that they may not even be aware that this stuff is recorded, but what they should really pay attention to is how they feel at the time of a certain event or an experience. Exactly. And would you again describe what those feelings are that would trigger an addict to know that, hmm, this may be about a past event that I've experienced that was very traumatic for me? 
There are two primary physical responses that, that I t- encourage people to pay attention to. One is, do you feel... Uh, 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 do you feel just a big, deep weight in the pit of your stomach, in your gut? Nine times out of ten, if your gut is heavy and it's feeling it, you're in a trauma reaction. Another way is checking in on how old do I feel right now? If you're feeling young, like a teenager, or if you're feeling like an eight-year-old, or if you're even feeling younger than that, like a five-year-old, if you feel very, very young, you're in a trauma reaction. So those are, those are physiologically easy ways of sort of checking in on, am I having a trauma reaction? Do I feel a, 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 something in the pit of my stomach just as a deep weight, or do I feel younger than myself? Okay, so then let me ask you, how does trauma work help someone understand the behaviors of sexual addiction? Because I think a lot of my clients, as well as a lot of the listeners, they they want to steer away from trauma work. You know, I know. On some level, they say, "Oh, I don't need to go there. I'll be fine." Yeah, looking at our trauma is it's in my opinion, I think it's so necessary for recovery work, but it is mm-hmm. scary. It can be overwhelming, uh, and it can feel like the last thing on earth we want to do. Sometimes, you know, I, I refer to doing this work as we, we have to rip off the scab, which is going to hurt, and we have to clean out the wound, which is going to hurt, and then we have to sort of put the ointment in there, which isn't going to be the most comfortable, but then we'll patch it up, and then you can finally start to heal. So when it comes to sex addiction, the way that it, 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 it impacts it is, again, if you think about the amygdala or that that sort of the survival part of our brain is hanging on to that trauma response. And when our trauma gets triggered, our survival brain says, I need to take over and I need to make sure that we survive this. And it doesn't matter if it's something from the outside that's threatening us physically or if it is something from the inside that feels like it's overwhelming to us and we, our, our, our survival brain thinks, I can't survive this emotional experience. Like my client who felt that abandonment pit in his stomach when his wife went away for the weekend and relapsed. What happens is our survival brain says, I can't survive this. I need to start figuring out what are my survival tools to get through this. As, as sex addicts, sex addicts at a very early age learned my sexual behavior will calm me down so that I'm not overwhelmed by what I'm feeling. So your survival brain kicks in and says, I'm overwhelmed, I know what to do, and it starts pulling up all the addict files from your brain. Oh, we can go look at porn. We can go act out over here. We can go hit on that former acting out partner. We can do whatever we need to do because that's going to help us to feel more grounded. It's going to help us to, be, to, to, to not feel so overwhelmed by what's going on. The problem is, is that that behavior is actually going to create more problems at this point in your life than it, than it fixes. The other piece that goes on, and I think that this is just fascinating, when my survival brain has been triggered by trauma and it is taking over saying, you need to survive, my cortex, which is holding all that good logical cognitive information, in a sense goes offline because if my, my, my brain is trying to logically think through something, it slows down the survival response. And my brain says that isn't a good thing. You need to survive. So we're shutting off the cognitive stuff. But the cortex... Well, that cortex, makes total sense, yeah. Yeah. So then, the the other ahead. piece is that the cortex actually changes its role. And instead of being, 
a logical cognitive part of our brain that's going to lead us into what makes sense. It flips into a different role and says, oh, now my job is to justify whatever the survival brain needs to do in order to survive. And if you think about it, you know, if you're out there listening to us and you're a sex addict and you think about all those addicted thoughts that come up where you convince yourself that, oh, this isn't my addiction because uh, what are some of my favorite stories? If I'm not looking at the monitor, then I'm not really looking at the porn. And so this person spends an entire week acting out on porn by looking at the monitor in a mirror. The person who convinces themselves, if I don't actually have an orgasm, then it's not masturbation. So they spend time stimulating themselves just shy of orgasm and can't figure out why they keep relapsing. Or the Bill Clinton type of thing. Well, you know, really, what is the definition of sex? So if it's not intercourse, it must be okay. What all of that is, is the survival brain being in control and the cortex saying, here's how we are going to twist logic to justify the behavior that the survival brain wants to do, mm-hmm. which leads us right back into acting out and your addiction. Absolutely. So now, obviously, you feel like there are some significant ways to deal with the trauma, to get to the trauma and to help process that. And it may be individual therapy. It may be workshops. It could be group mm-hmm. therapy. And, and you're a proponent of intensive trauma workshops, correct? I am. I am. I think there are all kinds of ways to work on trauma. Um, I think when you look at the trauma treatments that are effective, one of the common elements, in my opinion, is that they're not cognitive. I can sit and I can talk with a client about cognitively, logically, why this situation isn't happening, why they shouldn't have that reaction, why what they're doing makes no sense. And they can agree with me when we're in the session. But when they're in the middle of that reaction, if I say, you know, this makes no sense, they might say, yeah, 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 you're right, but it doesn't agree with their gut. And, it, and their gut is going to keep driving them in. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it again, when you're in that trauma reaction and your survival brain is running the show, all of the cognitive conversation I've had has just gone offline and it's not accessible to them. It's not usable. So having a cognitive intervention to trauma just doesn't really scratch the surface in my opinion. So there are all kinds of ways to do trauma, but what we have to do is we have to start working neurologically with the individual to get at that trauma to help it heal. EMDR does this, you know, by bilaterally stimulating the brain. Um, uh, Somatic experiencing does this by using sort of your somatic responses of your nervous system to calm it down. Uh, Trauma resource modeling does the same same similar process to um, uh, somatic experiencing. I do workshops based on uh, Pia Melody's work in post-induction therapy, which is using uh, visualization and sort of inner child work to, uh-huh. use, to use that as a window to get at the neurological healing to sort of resolve some of the trauma and at least take the edge off of it so it doesn't have the same drive that it does before. I have done trauma work in individual sessions And I find it can be effective, but it's slow. Um, And oftentimes there's a lot of time in between those sessions that I I find us spinning our wheels. I really like to do trauma work in a workshop. And if I can get somebody in, uh, the workshops I run are three and a half days. And coming in and and doing a three and a half day workshop where you are just focused on doing your trauma work and observing some other people who are doing their trauma work, which actually it's amazing how powerful it can be to observe someone else doing their trauma work and how many of your own pieces help come into place as you observe that. But 
it's like doing three to six months of therapy in one shot. Well, you know, you can't beat that kind of intensive treatment. And right now I'm talking with Timothy D. Stein, and he actually is one of the co-founders of Willow Tree Counseling. And that is how you do these intensive workshops, correct? It is. Through Willow Tree. Yeah, it is through Willow Tree. So how can listeners find out about the workshops that you have coming up? Uh, they can find information about the workshops on my website, and that website is willowtreesantarosa.com. Uh, there's a menu, and you'll find the trauma workshops on the menu. Um, or they can give me a call. Um, I don't typically have the workshop dates listed. I uh-huh. put them together as I have clients that are ready for it, or people from the who aren't my clients who want to come in and do the do the workshops give me a call. And I will put people together and, and, and put a workshop together. But they can give me a call. And my phone number is 707-888-9098. Okay. Tell us that number one more time because I'm going to write this down and I'm going to also put it on my website in case people need that information. Oh, sure. It's 707 888 Eight nine zero nine eight. Okay. And so, obviously, Hugh said it is an intensive way. When you're doing intensive trauma workshops, it's an intensive way of getting to some of the, the issues, getting to the root of the problem, getting to the little T and big T traumas that you've experienced in your childhood. So, in these workshops, you educate... Uh, the participants about their own shame and then carried shame. Can you explain yes. the difference between the two of those? Yeah. Um, your own shame is actually helpful to you. Okay. If you think about it, I need, um, I need an emotion that helps me to contain myself, that helps me to be humble, mm-hmm. and that helps me to recognize that I'm the same as everybody else. And that that emotion is shame. And when I feel my own shame, I feel embarrassed. Uh-huh. If I'm walking down the street and I trip over a crack in the street and other people see me, if I feel embarrassed, that's a normal and actually a healthy response. It's a response that, that my body and my uh, emotional state is saying, you are human, you make mistakes like everyone else, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not better than anybody else. You're just right here just like everyone else. Uh-huh. However, if I am walking down the street and I trip over that crack and other people see me and suddenly I feel less than, I feel not good enough, oh. that is carried shame. And carried shame is the shame that tends to drive our addictions. Our carried shame is shame that I have taken on from other people, oftentimes taken on from other people early in childhood. Um, okay. If, if, for example, a child is in a restaurant and they're like eight years old and they're at the table and they're a little clumsy and they knock over the milk, Mm-hmm. If the father has a, a rage attack and just berates the child about how clumsy could they be and they need to be a bit more careful and, and just is mean and verbally abusive to the child there, what the father is doing is a very shameful act. And the child will internalize that shame. And now any time that child makes a mistake – he will feel less than. He's taken on the shame of what his father has said and done. At the same time, if mother is at the table and mother does nothing and doesn't protect the child from father's rage, indirectly the child is taking on mom's shame because not protecting a child from that type of abuse is a shameful act as well. Mm -hmm. And that child will grow up feeling less than, 
and grow up feeling less than and feeling like they really don't have a right to be protected, to be heard, to to be considered or valued. And so this carried shame that we've taken on from other people, whether it's our parents, whether it's caregivers, whether it's a teacher or a coach, um, the the carried shame creates this shame core, which is that pit in the gut of your stomach I was talking about earlier. And when that gets triggered, it you know, oftentimes we're off to the races with our addiction. Well, you know, it, that makes a lot of sense. And, again, it can feel absolutely out of control for a client without a real understanding of what is going on. Why are they mm-hmm. processing things like this? What What's at the root of it? And, you know, I get a lot of clients that say, why, why, why? And, you know, as you explain this, it makes so much sense that there are – there are traumas, both little T and big T, that, that get caught up in both the brain and on a cellular level, and they create acting out behaviors. Now, I've got to ask you, in your workshops, you use the concept of the inner child. Explain what that is and how does that help to identify and heal trauma? Well, the inner child is sort of identifying a part of you that experienced that trauma. And in some ways, it's a way to nurture yourself. It's, 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 a, it's a part of yourself that you can, you can see this wounded part of yourself and you can sort of start nurturing and taking care of it. What I find is it's a great, great way to bypass the denial that people have. Like I was saying saying earlier, people will often, when I start talking about trauma, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I didn't have any trauma. You know, other people went through worse than what I went through. Uh, I survived. It couldn't have been that bad. And what I have found is that we will minimize the trauma that we have gone through. We will uh, deny to ourselves that it had any impact on us. That, well, it was nothing. And what I find is that people will will not hold other people accountable, will not recognize trauma, that if someone they really didn't like went through it, they would look at that and say, well, that was awful. No one should have to go through that. But when we look at it as something that we went through ourselves, we will minimize it and deny it and say, well, I got through it and then I was okay. Suddenly, when we start talking about an inner child, and I have metaphorically, this little five-year-old version of themselves in front of them. And I say, look at this five-year-old who was, you know, yelled at by dad at the, at the, at the table, in the, at the restaurant table, whose mom didn't protect him. Look at what this child is going through. And whereas before the person was saying, well, you know, dad was kind of stressed and mom didn't know what to do and they were just having a bad time, and I got through it and it was fine, Suddenly, when we have this inner child piece going on, and I say, who are you going to protect? Are you going to take care of this child, or are you going to continue to defend dad because he was stressed and defend mom because she was in a difficult relationship, or, and, and, and let this child continue to take this pain? Suddenly, I can get through their denial and and there's this almost visceral reaction that they have of, oh, no, I'm protecting the child. And by doing that, by starting to say, I'm going to take care of this child, I've gotten around or through their denial, and now I've got them taking care of themselves in a whole different way. So by taking care of themselves, now we have access to start doing that neurological healing work to heal the trauma by letting go of the shame that they have been carrying for so long, but they do it by recognizing that this inner child needs to be taken care of, which is really a way for them to take care of themselves. Well, that totally makes sense. And, you know, it is so important to pay attention to what that inner child really needs. Now, you do a lot of work around creating and strengthening kind of a functional adult. 
and you know you expect the functional adult to make some decisions that are nurturing and have self-care and so describe mm-hmm. a little bit about the functional adult and how you know they can resource yeah absolutely so when we're having a trauma reaction and, and like I was saying earlier, one of the ways you can tell you're in a trauma reaction is you feel younger. Well, when we get into these trauma reactions, when, like my client who relapsed when his wife went away for the weekend, you know, when he had that abandonment wound, and, and, and I asked him, how old did you feel? And he said, I felt like I was eight. Okay. In a very real sense, he was acting out as that eight-year-old. Well, So now if we're starting to take care of that eight-year-old, we need to have someone who can actually take care of it. And as sex addicts, sex addicts haven't had a really functional adult on board to take care of those wounded parts of themselves because they've been so driven by those traumatized uh, parts of them that are, are, are pushing their addiction. And so one of the things we do is we create a functional adult. And so I start by educating them about what a functional adult looks like and feels like. And then we start to integrate that into themselves. And the functional adult basically is the part of them that can recognize that they have value and worth, that their value and worth is an integral part of them and cannot be added to, but it can't be taken away from. That they, their functional adult is the part of them that can hold appropriate boundaries to protect them from other people and other people's emotional baggage and can hold an internal boundary to contain their own emotional baggage so that they don't vomit it onto other people. Their functional adult is the part of them that can embrace and accept that they are human and because they're human, they're wounded and they're imperfect and recognize that other people are human and imperfect as well. It's the part of them that can find appropriate interdependence with other people. Right. Taking responsibility for their own needs and wants, but letting other people support them. And almost as important, not taking on other people's needs and wants, but being willing to support other people as they meet their needs and wants. And then lastly, the functional adult is the part of them that can find moderation in all things. And when we start working with what is this functional adult and what does it feel like, and we start building that functional adult inside them, suddenly we have this, this new part of who they are that can start to take care of that trauma that they've got, that can start to manage what those situations that they're in differently. Now, you asked me to talk about resourcing, which fits perfectly with this. When we do resourcing, like um, in trauma resource modeling, when you go into a trauma reaction, your nervous system gets pushed outside of its resilience zone. And to resource it, we hang on to something that has a lot of positive energy to pull our nervous system back into alignment, which lets that cognitive part of our brain come back online and start running the show again. In the workshops where we're creating this functional adult, we're creating this great metaphor, but what it also does is it, by going through that process of acknowledging what is a functional adult and feeling it and integrating it into your, into your body, you're also resourcing, which is calming down your nervous system so that now you have the ability to, from that functional adult, start managing the situation in a different way. And for an addict, basically that means when I'm in a trauma reaction and my survival brain wants me to go act out my addiction, I can start to remind myself what my functional adult is, which helps my nervous system to calm back down, which brings my cortex back online. So it starts running the show instead of my survival brain. And with my cortex running the show, I can decide how I want to handle the situation in a sober way that matches my recovery instead of going with the addiction trigger to acting out. 
And, you know, it's interesting because certainly Patrick Carnes, who trained so many of us, said, you know, we are no longer going to be therapists. We're going to be brain scientists. And so you're talking about the cortex. You're explaining how integral that is to changing behaviors. And and I just – resourcing is such a positive way – of accessing the tools given through the intensive workshops or through certified sexual addiction therapists to to combat what naturally has occurred as a reaction to trauma. Would you oh, not agree? Absolutely. And and you know, I'm sure you've talked about, you know, addiction isn't isn't really a a moral choice. It, it's not even a even though it's a behavior. It's not a behavioral issue. Addiction is a neurological issue. Addiction is the the brain that got wired in a different way to manage the the trauma and the pain of the past. And so we have to understand as as clinicians working in sex addiction, we have to understand what the brain is doing, and we have to figure out how do we help the brain heal itself. Because if all we do is tell people, well, when this comes up, you should do this behavior instead. It'll work for a period of time. But right. in the long run, it, they're going to fall back into their addiction. And this is where I, when I see people that are in, um, you know, I, I refer to it as relapse patterns. You know, mm-hmm. they get at most three months sober and then they relapse. I actually see some people that will, will get like six months or a year of sobriety and then they're relapsing. But there's this chronic pattern of a period of sobriety where they feel solid, they feel good, and you know you talk to them and their commitment to the to the twelve step program, the commitment to the sobriety routine, the commitment to their sobriety plan is 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 genuine, but they keep relapsing and I believe that what's happening in those patterns is is well. Partly, they're missing something that they need to have in a sobriety plan or a sobriety routine. But I also think that a lot of what's happened is we haven't gone in and done the brain work yet. And all we've done is told them what behavioral things they should change. But they haven't gone in and done the trauma work, which helps the brain to heal and reprogram itself into a way that doesn't support the addiction, but reprogramming it to support recovery and consistent sobriety. Well, you're exactly right. And, you know, I am talking with Timothy D. Stein, and he is the co-founder of Willow Tree Counseling. He's been talking tonight about trauma and intensive trauma workshops, which he finds to be invaluable in changing a lot of these behaviors and helping to understand where they come from. So one more time, Timothy, would you give us your phone number, your website, and how somebody can get in touch with you to do this intensive trauma work. Absolutely. My phone number is area code 707-888-9098. And the website where you can find information about these workshops as well as all the work we do at Willow Tree is willowtreesantarosa.com. And on the website, there's a link to my email address, and you can email me if that's easier for you as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for because you are so good at explaining this very complex issue. And I wish you continued success uh, and hope that our listeners will take a look at these intensive workshops and choose to make their life different by intensively working on themselves Thanks so much, Timothy. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, Carol. It was a pleasure. All right. Continued success, and we will talk soon. Okay. You take care. Okay. You too. All right. Well, as you can see, lots of good information from this man, and I can't emphasize enough how important this work is to do. You know, you won't get healthy unless you choose to make this your life's work to heal the trauma that you've experienced. And as I say at the end of every session, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself.
We'll catch you next week. You're listening to Sex Help with Carol the Coach here on Blog Talk Radio. Have a great week.